In a 2021 piece, you looked at South Korea's marvelous economic transformation. Now, this is sometimes called the miracle on the Han River. There's lots of books written about this, articles, documentaries. I want to start with this term, the miracle on the Han River. What does this term mean to you? Do you like this term? What is the miracle? How do you explain it? What does, what does this term mean to you, Sojin? Before you actually uh, asked this question, I, to be honest, you know, I haven't thought about it deeply, uh, how miracle uh, really uh, means to me, because, you know, my background, uh, be before be I became the academic, I used to work for the aid agency in Korea. Uh, which is basically sending out uh, development aid to other developing countries. And I had a chance to visit many other developing countries. Mm. And more and more, I saw how a country developed. How South Korea developed really came to me something enormous. I would not define it as a miracle because... Miracle is something comes to me for me uh, without any plan or uh, efforts, but mm. just come all of a sudden. But mm. in the case of South Korea's economic development, I know that there were a lot of sacrifice, for example, my parents' generation. Mm. I know how they sacrificed for their children. Many people really worked hard. And even my generation, we really um, have worked hard. So it really based on, it is really based on the people to sacrifice efforts, their will, their, a lot of uh, plans or dreams. Mm. And then they achieved this relatively fast development in economic mm. terms in South Korea. But when I see other countries, it's really, really not easy task to achieve this level of economic development within that short time period mm. uh, for a country. So maybe because of that, uh, people uh, began to call it a miracle and just accept it without uh, uh, sensitive uh, uh, kind of um, investigation or uh, consideration. But mm. yeah, now I think it um, consider whether we can call it as a miracle or not. As I said, if I think about these all efforts and you know people's um, dreams and wills, how they provide their inputs to this uh, country's economic mm. development, certainly it's not like miracle, miracle. It's really the result of people's efforts. Does the I agree with you, by the way, that you know the the effort it it didn't just happen. Uh, there was blood, sweat and tears went into this. Mm. Does the same expression get used in Korean? I'm suddenly curious because in English, in the English language discourse, Miracle mm. on the Han River is very common. I'm just wondering, you mentioned your parents and, uh, and their sacrifices, yours. Does the same term get translated into Korean or is it described mm. another way? Um, we... So the uh, miracle of Han River is more or less about the academic term. So we have the term which is literally uh, called uh, Hangang'e Gijok, mm -hmm. which means uh, Han River's uh, miracle. Uh, but in a daily conversation, we normally don't uh, use that term. So I don't recall any of the conversation which I had 
with my colleagues or friends or my parents about this economic development, we barely talk about um, Miracle of the Han River, but whenever we talk with within the work frame with mm. the officials from other countries, then we uh, talk about it. Or uh, in the academic papers in Korea, uh, we talk about Hangang uh, and but um, not in the daily uh, conversation. No. Mm. No, that does make sense. It's just, mm. it's a catchphrase, I think, for academia sometimes mm. to make things look good. Mm. Um, I want to get into this transformation that South Korea went through. Um, at the start, Sojin, you mentioned this idea of developing countries and giving aid. Are those terms still cool to use, like developing, developed, semi-developed? Mm. Is it like global north? Uh, I'm never quite sure. Um, and I know language is important. Are those terms still cool? Very good question. Uh, as a matter of fact, there, we really have a lot of changes in terms of using terms. Before, mm. uh, you may recall that we use the term of first, second, and third world, yeah. right? right? Based on this ideological uh, approach, but we don't use these terms anymore, at least in the development studies discipline because my background is development studies. And in practice, whenever I met officials from developing countries or the international conference within the UN, for example, uh, finance conference and stuff, there were a lot of tries not to use these terms in a way, for example, recipient country or donor country, mm -hmm. then you know it automatically sets the powers between givers and the receivers, right? right? Yeah. So that's why they try to now use the term of a partner countries. And by using that, try not to use developing or developed countries as a term. And you know, there are no such countries developed, you know, all countries are developing. <laughs> and you know, I mean, I'm situated in the UK and as I mm. see, even though the income level is really high as a country, I still see homeless people. I still see people who are really poor. Mm. I see people who are really economically struggling in this country, which now we call new bottom billion. So before when you call developing countries, it was more about in the globe, bottom billion in the South, right? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. nowadays we see new bottom billion, which means these poor population within each country in China, in India, if you see it's a lot. So um, people try to see alternatives rather than put this develop or developed or developing. But when we say partner countries, then now it becomes really confusing. Mm. Which partner? Is it like a high income partner or a low income partner? Mm -hmm. So that's why people tend to go back to the old uh, rhetoric, putting developing countries to get things to understand easier. So mm. it really depends on how you approach and what kind of uh, understanding you have with uh, someone else. So it's really uh, kind of a mix nowadays. Some people prefer, some people prefer not prefer. So that is, uh, yeah, that is how I see the, about these terms. You mentioned some of the problems, <clears throat> excuse me, in the United Kingdom. And mm. I would much rather take a South Korean subway or a train than a British one, just in terms of, you know, th that's <laughs> development, isn't it? It's, it's night and day. 
Mm. Um, before we, I guess, before we talk about South Korea's development, one of the things, Sojin, that I have trouble communicating to my South Korean students and to the international mm. students is the situation that South Korea was in, I guess, before the miracle on the Han River, before mm. this development, before the subways and, and trains and KTXs mm. that we have today. Like, from your from your understanding in terms of development and aid, where was South Korea? Because mm. we know where it is now, don't we? Mm. But like, are you able to give a, like just even a rough idea of what kind of situation it was in, in the fifties, mm. in the sixties or? Mm. You know, I, I was born in late 1970s. So um, me, myself, how I perceive Korea in 1950s and 60s is basically from the pictures mm -hmm. and from the conversation which I have with my parents or my aunts or uh, uncles or even my grandparents. Mm -hmm. And it's based on that conversation. You know, I have this certain image of the countries that that time. Mm -hmm. um, in that sense, if we simply approach, if you think of this stereotype image of North Korea nowadays with the buildings which is not modernized, not Pyongyang, mm. but those in the borderline uh, with uh, China, which for me looks like a little bit um, between still somewhere from Joseon dynasty time or mm. even the Japanese colonial time. Mm. So we still uh, used to have those kind of housing system and the road, if you think about, we didn't have this uh, road uh, system of uh, today. It was most of just road, which is really difficult to walk or even ride uh, uh, cars because mm. it's bumpy a lot. Sure. And that kind of reminds me whenever I visit uh, countries like Tanzania, I um, uh, had my PhD field work in Tanzania for like a year. And mm. I had a chance to go deep in the village where you have to drive more than four hours, then you reach the village. And going into that village, because the road is not modernized road, it's just, you know, as it was from the beginning. Mm. And it was really bumpy and it was really hard for the uh, like um, big cars going smoothly. And if you think about, for example, you are in the dipping village and then you all of a sudden became sick and then you need to get to the hospital. Mm. But number one, you don't have any facility to get to the hospital, even though you have luckily have a bicycle or motorcycles, then the road condition is not good. Mm. And also the telephony or all this online or internet was not there. And on top of that, I have experienced that I was isolated because mm. there were a lot of rain and mm. floods around my village. So I couldn't go out for like a, a week. No water wow. because, you know, they were all and no electricity. So I had to just, you know, um, be there without light or without water, without food. And it was really an experience. And mm. that kind of houses, families were there in 1950s and 60s, especially, you know, after the Korean War. Mm. So that was kind of a very difficult situation, if you think, and all disease, because you can't have a clean water access. 
So, you know, you suffer from all these diseases. And I still remember that when I was in elementary school, it was in 1980s. You know, I see my uh, classmate in front of me and, you know, the lice, you know, in the hairs were still there. So we had to pick them up. So those kind of situations were there. But if I speak with younger generation nowadays, you know, looking at lice, they haven't even had a look of the lice uh, kind of thing in their life before. And, you know, and also uh, we had to see, you know, these worms in our bodies, um, you know, all different kinds of because of the uh, uh, situation. And we had Mm -hmm. to have kind of a nasty uh, test uh, time. So I still remember, you know, when I was in elementary school, every year you have to take your poop Mm-hmm. in the little bag mm-hmm. and then um, submit it to the school and school all collects send it to the lab of the government and they test and then they identify how many students are still having uh, these worms in the body system and we have to have uh, had to have a tablet to kill them and we had to have a yearly tablet afterwards so all these kind of things uh, were there already even in 1980s, and if you imagine mm. in 1950s and 60s, it would have been really, really difficult to mm. uh, see, even imagine the days of we live at the moment. And if I speak with my parents, you know, having a fridge itself, little one, um, yeah. it was really, really hard uh, uh, thing to achieve because not only uh, the supplies were enough, but also the electricity and, you know, uh, all these uh, uh, expensive uh, gadgets in, uh, at home. And I remember when my mom uh, was pregnant, you know, they didn't have air conditioning at all mm. at the time. And um, they had only one fan, but because um, the electricity cost was really high, but they now had to have the fridge, which is a very little one. Mm. And my mom in the summertime used to open the fridge and then put the belly on it to make her baby cool. Not herself, she was still sweaty. Mm. Now, all these things, you know, those kind of stories, the stories of 1970s. And if you think how it would have been in 1950s and right. 60s, right. You know, so that's how I um, approach uh, this imaginable uh, times. South Korea is a, a, sometimes in terms of weather, a difficult place to live in the 21st century with the heat, the humidity, the cold winters. And yeah, how people would have survived that. The belly in the fridge is amazing. <laughs> First time I've heard, I'll, I'll get in trouble for saying this, but my uh, my wife, she still tells stories of having to do like communal exercise in the mornings mm. before school, like this kind mm. of, yeah. yeah. It's not yeah. that long ago, though, is it, Sojin? That's the thing about it. No, it's, it's not. It's, uh, no, so uh, that uh, then goes to the uh, conversation about Semarundo, right? Mm. Uh, the new village movement uh, created by President Park jong time when we had a kickoff, economic kickoff uh, time. Um, and that Semarundo, if you see the main rationale of the Semarundong can be very good. You know, once you conduct industrialization in the country, you mm. tend to focus on cities, but then the rural places tend to be abandoned easily. Mm-hmm. So the Semarundong was more about the rural development, parallel development from urban and rural. So urban cities, you focus on 
industrialization, heavy industrialization. At yeah. the same time, in the rural places, you impose the semarundong, so make people to come all together, work mm. together, and make the your village clean. So every morning, you know, um, like you know, the in Islamic countries, you have a mosque, you know, having the music around. Mm-hmm. That kind of uh, music came out uh, with a song about semarundong. Every village yeah. in 1970s or 60s, then you know people come out and then do some exercise and then you know uh, wiping your um, uh, neighborhood and or make things and then you know you begin your day early, right? Mm. So it's about the mentality. And when I was in school, um, I didn't have semarundong that time because it was 1980s, mm. but. Like your wife said, what we had to do, all students come to the um, the playground all together and there's a microphone, a, a teacher, you know, uh, telling students in lines, you know, mm. if you see this mess uh, uh, movement of China or uh, North Korea, yeah. we used to have it. I don't know whether they still have it nowadays because I don't have kids, obviously, but I used to have it when I was a kid and that was a normal. Mm. And every morning, we all do the exercise together. And um, I remember when you had the Asian game and Olympic game in 1986 and 1988, we also used to do some uh, military exercises mm-hmm. to make our body stronger because of this, you know, Olympic and Asian game spirits. So more still that time, you know, I see the uh, legacy of this authoritarian um, uh, approach, a military-based um, centered uh, uh, mentality. mentality. So yeah, those were there uh, in early days. Nowadays, you know, I can't imagine. No, we have those kind of things. No way. Can you imagine trying to get your students today, or in South Korea, asking them to bring poop into class or to do early morning <laughs> exercise? The hashtags, the social mm. media would explode. They, 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 they would go crazy. But I love those mm. stories because so it makes it real, doesn't it? And mm. I think therefore, when you when you hear more about those experiences. You understand how people might have different perspectives on the country, the transformation when they've mm. uh, when they've inhabited both, let's say, contemporary Korea today and during that development period, mm. because they would have seen these changes. What so if we get into this question, then I guess, Sojin, what is it that helps South Korea from going, you know, with Seoul having very little in the way of electricity, running water, having slums and, and, and fields to what it is now. You mentioned at the start people's efforts and a goal. It's a very difficult question, I guess, but how does it achieve that? How does it go from what it was to what it is today? Was it was it just people's efforts? Were there lots of different factors? How do you try to get that across? That is really, really difficult question to answer because we, we, when we talk about the economic development of South Korea as a country, mm. we still have this question about authoritarian dictatorship along with economic development. Mm. No other countries experience this. So, uh, for example, we have um, Africa, Korea economic development uh, ministers um, uh, conference every year. Mm -hmm. And I remember that when I attended that for the first time, the very questions from African leaders were, you South Korea used to have dictators, then, you know, South Korean um, 
uh, officials had to correct it as a like authoritarianism rather than mm-hmm. dictators because mm-hmm. of this rhetoric and the government and stuff. And um, they ca- asked whether economic development would have been possible in South Korea without President Park Jong-un, without dictatorship, without authoritarianism. Mm. It's because, you know, we can't say anything in hindsight, you know, know, history would have been like that, you know, so we can't uh, give a concrete answer about that. One thing for sure is that authoritarianism or dictatorship are not good, you know, can't just, you know, um, suppress people like that because of the reason for economic development. But South Koreans had to anyhow experience because if we think about the way how Park Jong-hee spent his earlier life, he was in Japan and his experience itself was developed in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our, our view of life is based on how we lived, how we experienced, mm-hmm. right? And also before even Park Jong-hee, um, the Seungman Lee, the Seungman president was also not... 100% you know democratic even though he studied in the US mm. and also we our the korea's modern contemporary history was all of a sudden started from the gap from my point of view you know we had uh, still joseon dynasty time and the all of a mm. sudden japanese uh, occupation was there and then mm. it was not normal a uh, process of a country's development and all of a sudden, so, so-called modernized um, Korea was created with external involvement, U.S. and other countries, right? Mm. So I don't know. It's just it's really difficult to say whether South Korea uh, could have seen the different pathway of economic development without those uh, paths. It's really difficult to say, but uh, one thing for sure is that, as I said, the sacrifice of the people, mm. regardless, you know, they really, because they experienced the war, they experienced the colonial government, they knew that these are all the experiences which they do not want to hand over to their children. Mm-hmm. The next generation should deserve better. So in that sense, the efforts and sacrifice were there for sure. And I, I believe that those kind of mentality kind of helped out uh, well of the speed of economic development. I've never asked this question before. I don't even know if it's polite, but just listening to you talk, do you think when you mentioned the scars, the trauma of Japanese occupation, colonization, mm. that when you have these dictators or authoritarian presidents or Mm. whichever term is correct that for some people it was well at least it's our dictator at Mm. least it's a korean one it's not the united states it's not russia it's not Mm. china it's not japan anymore it's our one is there an element of that going on sojin or do you think that kind of misses the point Mm, not so sure it's really controversial you know um you know, I still remember the time when I was in the elementary school, for example, you know, all of a sudden uh, in the afternoon class, we were told not to go out. 
and then we were all locked within the uh, school because the university students' protest began outside, and all this um, uh, military with mm. the uh, uh, tear gas came over against students. And my elementary school was next to the university, and two other universities were not far away. Mm. So these three university students, they all the time doing this protest together against the uh, government. Then these school kids, the uh, elementary school kids, it had to be locked. And you know, we all suffered because of this tear gas came right. into the school. And next morning, you know, like the exercise, in the morning, you every class take a turn. So one class today go out and then, you know, clean the um, around the uh, school. Mm -hmm. Then next day is the next class. So it was uh, our class term. And one of my classmates lost a finger because there was the um, tear gas, which was not uh, blown. Uh, but then when he touched it mm. and then all of a sudden, so he lost his uh, finger. So this kind of experience I still have. Certainly it's not something I want others to experience. Mm. And I also used to hear all this nasty unfair stories from my uh, senior members from the school and from the university. It's something if you don't experience it, you can't imagine how it would be like. Mm. But at the same time, maybe because we really struggled and then regardless, we really wanted to achieve something and worked hard, then there was this uh, development, development in the society as well. Really, no, it's really not, yeah, easy to clearly, yeah, uh, yeah visualize. Do you think those experiences drove you towards the idea of working with development, with working with aid and these kind of things? Mm. No, it's not uh, like that because in a way, you know, my parents' generation, they are really conservative. You know, if you see the recent presidential election, you know, there's a, mm -hmm. a very clear generation gap to yeah. see the, uh, the candidates. And not me, only me, many of my friends' parents are that much different in a way how they think about the government, for example, how they think about Jaebols and Samsung's. They are the ones who sustained the economy of Korea mm. and... Um, if uh, someone's, so it's like very different generational gap there. Yeah. And um, I don't know if I think for me, mm, yeah, it's, it's more like uh, the development um, was not in my mind that time when I uh, when entered into the university kind of what I learned from the university was kind of different from what I learned from my high school time in mm -hmm. terms of a Korean history. So I didn't that time think about this development aid yet. For me, it was not the globalized uh, word yet. So the Korea, so-called globalized uh, Korea began in um, nine, late 1990s and uh, President Kim Young-sa all of a sudden talk about globalization mm. without any clue. So it was not in my mind yet, but for me, the turning point was 
when I was in uh, third year of my university, I think, that time, uh, what happened in Korea, mm. normally when you, you, can, you could go to pharmacy and ask pharmacists to uh, give you some uh, medicines and then they could combine different kinds of pills, you know, okay. without prescription. Okay. So um, it's not only uh, over the counter uh, in the uh, tablet boxes, but then they could uh, make their own uh, prescribed uh, uh, pills. Sure. But that time, um, the government imposed a new policy, like what you have in the UK, for example, and nowadays. Mm. So whenever you want to have a certain uh, combined pills, I don't know how to exactly call it in English in a nice way, but yeah. without prescription, uh, it was possible. But nowadays, you should have a prescription in order to have certain range of pills from the pharmacy. Right. And those pills you can get from the pharmacy is only uh, over the counter or uh, ready-made, right? So um, the government made it clear that now pharmacies can't make their own decision mm -hmm. what to provide. So they should have a prescriptions. People should have prescriptions from the uh, medical doctors mm. in order to have those kind of uh, pills from the pharmacy. So those kind of discussion was there. Yeah. And um, we call it um, medical um, medicine division. Mm -hmm. So um, there were a big um, uh, protest from the uh, medical school uh, students as well. So students, uh, medical school students could not attend um, the classes because they were on the protest. Right. So during winter uh, vacation time, they had to catch up their missing classes from those protests. And the university where I came from, the Iwa Women's University used to go, the medical school students of Iwa Women's University used to go to Cambodia or Nepal as mm. a volunteering medical time every uh, winter. But because these medical students had to attend the uh, missing classes during the winter time, they couldn't go. Wow. So for the first time of the university history, they had to select non-medical students for this medical volunteering camp. And uh, mostly they wanted to select students from majored in uh, education sector. Mm -hmm. So I uh, did my undergraduate uh, for the elementary education. So I, I applied and um, I uh, was successful. So I went to Nepal with the medical team. Before then, I had to go to the um, Iwa hospital in Mukdong uh, to get some trains mm -hmm. and the basic things, what to do kind of things. So with um, medical doctors, nurses, and pharmacists, and the uh, handful of students, we uh, went to Nepal uh, during winter time. It was first time for me to fly to somewhere else apart from Korea mm -hmm. in my life. And imagine, you know, you um, landed on the airport at nighttime, no electricity, just a cemented ground and building, mm -hmm. still with the military guys with uh, long guns. And there's only one uh, big light featuring on the ground where the plane landed. Mm. And, you know, it was like kind of in a prison camp, really weird. And then you went into this very poor facility and then come out and all these people, you know, all this different world. And it was really shocking for me. Mm. And um, whilst doing this medical volunteering job was really, really 
difficult to see people because we easily could fix certain things right mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. Some people couldn't do that and that made the situation worse. And now they have to amputate because it was not, it was, well, it lost the golden time, all these kind of things. And that's how I became so much interested in this development aid because I learned what is aid there mm. with other medical uh, people from US or other countries. And because they ran out of their uh, medicines and we had to work together, all of a sudden it was not planned. And that's how I learned how other countries work on the so-called uh, development aid. Mm -hmm. So that's why I entirely changed my career pathway. You know, as an elementary education a university students, I when I graduated, I had the um, uh, teacher's certificate and I was supposed to have an exam and then becoming <laughs> elementary school teacher. Well, mm. um, just my mind entirely changed because of that experience. So my interest in development aid was not from the economic development of Korea. And as I said, I didn't realize mm. how it could be prestigious situation to be in South Korea before I began to fly and see other countries. And um, the more realization came through afterwards rather than um, uh, my uh, early days. Mm. I think that's really interesting how you understand South Korea's position, perhaps relative to other countries that, you know, when you visit places like Nepal, then you it gives you a different understanding of South Korea relative to that. On your work on aid, um, Sojin, and before I ask this question, I must say, I, I think it's wonderful how you tell these stories, not just through sort of like data and statistics, but like today you're telling it through human experiences and memories and things. I love it. Um, your academic work does look at a lot of aid and like aid given to South Korea just during its development. So I still want to try to piece out this story. Um, you focus on like American aid to South Korea um, in one of your pieces, and this is like $2 billion over a like a 15 year period, very short time, but a, a large amount of money. What's your, how do you understand the role that American financial aid has played in South Korea's economic transformation? Sort of its military is well understood with the war, but that that money given to South Korea, what, what role has that played? Mm. I strongly believe that one country can't help the other country's economic development solely. Mm. It should be in solidarity with other countries. But mm. the situation in South Korea was really different because it's geopolitically very important position in that time, well, even now, ideological war in a Cold War period, it has the uh, China, Russia there. So America had to keep this South Korea mm. as a lie of their side. And, couldn't get this peninsula occupied by so-called uh, the uh, Russia or Soviet Union at that time mm. and uh, China. Still nowadays, you know, the Korea Peninsula works as a, a buffer zone. Yep. That's why China still provides aid to North Korea. It doesn't uh, fully uh, abide by the sanctions because China knows that North Korea should be there. Mm -hmm. It was not much different 
in all the times. South Korea should have been there for Americans' side. Mm. So it was not altruistic reason at all from America to provide aid to South Korea. And that was why a lot of money was put into South Korea. And um, those money from America was not only bilateral, it was also through the multilateral organizations like UNDP or um, other multilateral organizations. But the important thing here is that what kind of aid America provided, I would, have say, I would say, mm. for example, at the beginning of development stage, South Korea, as you see, the natural resources is scarce, you know, um, South Korea, doesn't have a lot of natural resources to develop. Mm. So it only needed um, uh, money to import necessary resources. Then in order to do that, the seed money had to be there. Then this kind of uh, aid that time, financial aid or technical aid, which provides you the skills to develop or skills uh, to work on. So those work really well. It's really uh, based on the textbook. Uh, it, in theory, it says like that. And then for me, South Korean case really worked out well uh, if uh, we think about the theories of development. Then eventually other countries began to invest, uh, which means a loan aid and or concessional aid rather than grant aid. Mm. So in that sense, this, the initial American grant aid worked as a seed money and also it could show other countries that this country is a credential in terms of provide investment. Because you know, if you don't think that country has ability or capability to return, then you know, um, no such country will come back unless it's altruistic. So at the beginning after the war, it was altruistic from other countries, but then you know, once it turned into a certain stage, you know. Um, then they more or less think about the dip diplomatic reasons or commercial reasons when they provide aid. And because of the geopolitical situation of South Korea, America provided a lot of money and that's how it worked. So um, I would not uh, say that uh, thankfully to American aid, I would mm -hmm. have said that there was reason from America to provide the aid and that kind of coincidentally uh, fitted uh, fit well in the situation of Korea at the time. So it was from America's perspective, it was driven by self-interest. It wasn't altruistic, but nevertheless, it did benefit South Korea in, in mm. receiving that during the time. Um, what about then what happens, Sojin, and I guess this might also be a little bit controversial, but I asked the question respectfully based on your research. What about the the grant aid and concessional loans that comes from Japan? Because mm. I think the American financial aid is, is quite well documented in, in Korean language press and news. That comes up a lot. I'm, I'm quite familiar with it. Um, but the, the Japanese story, I, I think, is sometimes perhaps not as widely known. And when your article was pointing at that a little bit, it sort of made me stop and think. What role did Japanese finance and aid play in South Korea's development? As I said, uh, one country's aid can't play a significant role in a country unless it's really a big push. Mm. No such sufficient big push has been done in any other countries. And likewise, Japanese aid, in terms of the amount, did not play 
significant role. It's all accumulated with uh, other countries, either like from Germany or France, mm-hmm. uh, World Bank, uh, uh, NDPV organizations, or uh, United States. And also, when we define the terms, now we don't call it as an aid or development aid. And the Japanese one, we call it as a compensation mm-hmm. uh, against war crime. But it was not from the beginning. Japan uh, reported its aid to South Korea as an ODA, official development assistance. But the budget where it came from was not from the ODA budget. It was from the different um, uh, uh, budget pocket. Um, and there were long discussion, as I remember, you know, when I still uh, was in uh, aid agency, at the beginning, without considering, we just called it Japanese aid. Mm. But all of a sudden, the government uh, made it clear that now there was agreement or uh, there was the final decision not to call as aid anymore, but is work compensation, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's why we uh, began to change the terms. So that means it was not from the beginning, it was not agreed as a, our compensation, but um, there was some confusion in between. And that became clearer if we see the case of North Korea, when Japan was about to provide aid to North Korea and the Ro- North Korea requested the aid to Japan, mm. um, North Korea demanded the same uh, scheme like Japan provided South Korea. Mm-hmm. And Japan denied to call it war compensation. North Korea demanded it as a war compensation. Mm. And Japanese government denied to call it as a war compensation. And if it has too big war compensation, then Japan uh, denied to provide any aid. Then uh, North Korea and Japan kind of discussed. And then, um, as I remember correctly, uh, was something like economic development fund or aid, something like that, no, using different terms, right? Mm, mm. But then, you know, all of a sudden this uh, uh, abduction and uh, the uh, nuclear uh, happened. So um, Japan sending nothing to North Korea. But this kind of uh, discussion, conversation, uh, disputes were all there. And um, I believe that even now uh, today, the understanding or the official documenting between South Korea and Japan would mm-hmm. do be different because, uh, yeah, even other other disputes around uh, Korean Peninsula, you know, if we see the situation, yeah, it uh, would not be clearly uh, defined in Japan side in the same way as in South Korea. I think it demonstrates just how uh, complicated this issue is because it's not just about giving aid or giving money or support mm-hmm. or finance, but it's also related to geopolitics. It's also related to intentions, whether they're altruistic or not. It's related to terminology, how these things are classified. You, you, it sounds even more <laughs> difficult now. If I, <laughs> if I come back into South Korea rather than the external factors, um, your work, Sojin, also looks at uh, five-year plans. Mm. So, so in this economic transformation of South Korea, and I think the first five-year plan is coming early 60s, like 1962. Mm. And again, this might show my ignorance, but when I see five-year government plans, I start thinking of China and North Korea and like this mm. is top-down state-centered economic development. 
Am I right to associate it with those countries? Do other countries have five-year, 10-year plans? What role did these five-year plans play in uh, South Korea's development during this time? So when we talk about this, we call it as a mid-term plan. So mid-term plan is mm. normally five-year and the long-term goes to 10 years. Okay. And in theory, uh, it's really recommended by multilateral organizations like World Bank. So a country should have a national development plan Mm. mostly five years to 10, ten years. Okay. So that time, regardless whether Park, President Park jong was right person or not from this dictatorship and all this stuff, if we solely focus on the economic development limited, then having five-year plan that time mm. from the government itself was something really amazing because when we provide development aid to other countries, normally they do not have capacity, the government capacity to come up with its own development plan. Mm -hmm. Because of that, the aid providers cannot respect, cannot hold the ownership of partner countries because mm -hmm. they don't have their own plan. And then from the provider's side, from providers already developed experience, look around and see, oh, for your country, this would have been a good plan to do. So mm. they impose what they think is good, mm. right? That's why we call Bretton system or World Bank um, a neoliberal uh, approach, right? Mm. Basically that provides you that one size fits all approach. No, there's a, a big tree. And then, you know, this famous uh, cartoon um, made it clearer. So we are today having the exam and you have animals like elephant, snake, monkey, birds, or fish. Mm -hmm. And you all have one uh, test exam. There's a big tree. Who comes up to the climb up to the, uh, the tree fast is the one who gets the 100 mark. It's not fair, right? right? And this is like that. So providers seeing the situation of these countries who have different level of development status, but then giving one good so-called good policy mm -hmm. and they have to abide by then they provide the aid mm -hmm. it's all because they didn't have their own plan they didn't have a capacity to come up with their own plan so that's why nowadays the norm is that the providers help out partner countries government to think and come up with their own mid-term plan and by having it they see their income the budget, national budget, you know, normally in countries, they don't have ability to mobilize domestic resources because people can't pay for tax. Mm -hmm. So right. the finance gap in order to, for example, to have the uh, big port for import and export, you need to have a big money, right? But it's not enough from the tax money, taxpayers' money. Mm -hmm. Then that money should be substituted by the external aid, where the aid works then you need to know we have a national plan. For example, the South Korea, the very first highway from Seoul to Busan, mm. that really helps out the industrialization process a lot because the trade and you know all these things becomes really fast. In order to do that kind of construction, we call it hardware construction, then you need to know it takes how many years, mm -hmm. then how much money you need in your budget. So those kind of things all need to be in your national budget for five-year plan. Mm. Then you see, you can tell the providers, oh, for next five years, we need this amount of money. 
and we don't have it. We have only this amount. So this much money we expect you guys provide us. So those kind of things. Then the providers, oh, so in your country, your situation is different from my country. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can see that your country have a lot of more mountains. So you can't have this kind of road, but then that kind of road need to be there and need to be different approach. So this is why this so-called five-year midterm plan is really important. Mm. So it could have been seen as a like government-centered, of course, it is government-centered, mm. but it's how you implement it is more important. So the South Korea, the so-called four tigers in, in East Asia, South Korea, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, and Taiwan, yeah. all we call them as a developmental states. And developmental states has this very strong feature, the cent- government, central government's national plan. Mm. And that really worked out well. So again, you know, in, it ha- doesn't happen in all the cases, even though other countries have this national plan imposed by the mm. central government. We don't see achievement there it's because the implement pl- uh, process is different. So it's more about rather than having government-centered imposed top-down approach or not, it's more about then how you can facilitate and implement it. Mm. That's how I least see. Yeah. So South Korea, it did have the plans and it, it did have these midterm things and it wanted that Seoul to Busan uh, expressway and it had to go through so many mountains, I remember reading, mm. to get there. Um, so then it does that, it has the plans, it implements the plans, then how much Sojin does south korean culture play a role in this does it play any role i mean you mentioned the four asian tigers so i i i guess this is sometimes a controversial question i think some people love this explanation some people hate it um Mm. but you know in south korea there is that kind of there are confucian hierarchical relationships and that that who you went to school with and where you're from and your hometown, there are bonds. Everybody has bonds, right? It, it's natural. Mm. But how much of a role do you think that culture played alongside the plans mm. and alongside the aid? My own experience is very limited as well. So I mm. can't tell or compare with other cultures. But once I lived in this country in the UK, I realized that in the UK also, you have those nepotism a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 It's everywhere. So I can't say that that is something bad or good because it's human nature, as I see, it's mm. everywhere. But the case of South Korea is because of the culture of economic development was so fast, there's a certain things which represent South Korean culture in a way, for example, the competitiveness mm-hmm. is just too much. Mm-hmm. When I grew up, you know, all the time, you know, from the top, when you, whenever you have an exam, which rank you've yeah. won, that's, yeah. that's the only thing your parents would have focused. But nowadays it's a bit different because now the parents know that having talent in some way can make your children different. For example, singing better or dancing better or even golf, you know, all these things, sports. Mm. But when I grew up, these kind of sport, music, art, they were not important at all. Mm. Most important thing is, you know, give having good exam on the paper. Mm. They all the time being compared 
being compared towards something and you have to be good all the time. Right. And that mentality, you no, know, I grew up in that culture. So it still is here. So whenever I work here in the UK at the moment, automatically I see everybody's my competitors. I can't help. <laughs> But people in the UK, they don't, they don't have it. No, they have more luxury of peace in mind, I, I call it. So this kind of a competitiveness is there as a culture. And that works in a good way to bring up synergy amongst colleagues. But at the same time, it ruins because you all the time have to compete, right? So that is one culture grew up with economic development in Korea. And as you, well, as we all know, the uh, education fever and a uh, good level of education. I was really shocked when I first came here in the UK, you know, only about less than 30% of population go to, goes to university. Mm-hmm. And many of our university students, they are first generation. So here, first generation, most of Koreans do not know. So um, in your family, you are the first one who have education in the university level, at the university level. So most of our students are first generation and because of that, they don't know what to do after graduation. With university degree, easily end up at the Starbucks working as a part-time server kind of thing. Mm. It was really shocking for me because in Korea, most of people go to Or university or college and yeah. you know and the more and more going to having ma or phd degrees but they're still being jobless right yeah but um countries like in the uk i as an academic who spent a lot of time and spent a lot of money finance on my education ended up with the salary which is at the bottom level of the society And people who has a skills who didn't have a, a, a education at the university, but having a skill like you know becoming joiner or yeah. becoming like plumber, they a lot on a lot better, and then they enjoy their life. You know, every summer time they go to Spain, somewhere Spain, they have their own houses there and enjoy mm-hmm. the sun. So this is very different culture from my perspectives. You know, compared to this education and competitiveness. It's mm. unnecessary torture mentally, but um, here it's very different. And my students at the university, they, they don't much care about their grades. Well, they, they care about grades, but not at the same level as Korean students because they know that once they have the degree, mm. then they try the work which they want to do. But from Korea, your future work will depend on which grade you've earned, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is a really different culture right. in terms of the economic development process and pathway. That's a, a really nice way of looking at it rather than focusing on, let's say, the, the nepotism or things, which is everywhere. You look at the Eton and our prime ministers and such yeah. forth in, in the UK, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Russian peerages being bought in the House of Lords mm-hmm. and things like that. It, it's well documented. But in terms of the uh, the attitudes towards education and social advancement, they are different. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct to point it out. And when you mentioned joiners, carpenters, plumbers, electricians, right, lackeys, they also have a a fair amount of social 
uh, like cultural capital. Whereas in mm. South Korea, to not be at university or to not be in those fields, mm. it's not just the money. I think so. Din sometimes mm. it's rather the the I don't know what is it, bonbon or nunchi, or but they look down mm. upon a little bit more. I think, mm. aren't they? Mm. Yeah, it's really different. It's like because I'm 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 South Korean, hundred percent South Korean, so I still can't get out of my own culture, and mm. I call it my own culture. Mm. So, for example, my colleague who has a higher level of education, but then dating with someone without university level education in Korea, it's a taboo. You can't mm. tell about it to your friends, right? Mm. Right. But here, it's not. No, it's just nobody cares. You know, oh, how's the person like? You know, and then we just have a pop time together, and you know, get to know each other together, and have decent conversation. Mm-hmm. Because the the conversation is not only from the education, but they tend to listen to radio, and the radio feed the information into people, mm-hmm. and we can have decent conversation about the politics and all these things. But in South Korea, I can't imagine. You know, you go to the pub and then meeting someone, being plumber and having talk about politics at the same level. No, it's really different. So this I call it a different culture. I think the pub. I think the pub culture is completely different because in England you go to a pub <laughs> and you just talk to random people. A lot of the mm-hmm. time you're standing up. Actually, mm-hmm. I think just the logistics. You're standing up. You've got a pint in your hand. There's no Andrew, but in South Korea you're, you're sat at a table, aren't you? And you have your little mm-hmm. bell. So I just the logistics. Mm-hmm. We're recording this Sojin on a Sunday, and when we arranged it on a Sunday, and I said let's mm-hmm. do it Sunday, you said to me, David, you're very South Korean now. <laughs> you you want to work on a Sunday? <laughs> yeah. Here we yeah. are. When let's just try to get through this aid bit a little bit more. When South Korea changes from a recipient country, Sojin, to a like I'll get these words wrong, but to a donor country. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's a partner, but its role in that partnership changes mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. than receiving. Um, Uh, mm. Aid and money. It starts doing that, mm. and it joins the OECD in 1996. These are big steps, I think. Are they? How meaningful are they? Um, do you think? And do they have a big fanfare amongst normal people, or is it only academics and mm. uh, sort of economists that look at South Korea now donating and joining the OECD? How does that transformation work? Mm. So here, this is really my personal um, observation and opinion, Good. and anecdotal based on anecdotal um, uh, mm. observation, which I heard from my senior colleagues. I have no clear evidence whether it was really like that or not. But as I heard anecdotally, when South Korea joined OECD in 1990s, the president Kim Yong Sam all of a sudden began to talk about globalization. His cabinet members didn't know what globalization um, meant. Kim Yong Sam, President Kim Yong Sam, uh, met somewhere outside and heard globalization, and oh, that was the keyword mm-hmm. in my term. So that's how, and then boosted the uh, way towards OECD. For me personally, I think it was a bit hurrying up uh, uh, process. As an OECD member, the students, for example, at university, they can't apply for many different kinds of uh, scholarship opportunities because most of the scholarship opportunities goes to non-OECD member countries. Mm. Because OECD countries tend to be categorized as a high-income rich countries. 
-hmm. So those scholarships tend to go to a relatively a poorer country students to give more opportunities for them to uh, study. So still there are many uh, students who need scholarships in South Korea because South Korea culture is not donation culture, not mm -hmm. like here. Mm -hmm. So students do not see many scholarship opportunities and abroad, they could have had more opportunities with their education level, but mm -hmm. because they are OECD members, they can't even apply for. Mm -hmm. So these kinds of things, um, well, for now, for sure, South Korea is a very high-income country. But if you think about what happened in 1990s, late 1990s, financial Asian financial crisis, you know, uh, my family also had a lot of impact. My my dad um, uh, work, um, my dad also had to uh, lose his job, and my family suffered a lot. It's because the economy was not stable enough to be the high-income country yet. It was not mature enough. Mm. So the income level went into the middle income. Then what we call now is middle income trap. Fortunately, South Korea overcame the middle income trap and became high income country, mm -hmm. but not many countries could overcome like many of the Latin American countries. Once they enjoyed their economic development, they now are stuck, right? Yeah. So becoming OECD member was a bit of a hurry, but now no doubt, you know, and also is a... Uh, uh, clearly a donor country. And about the, this fanfare or this, you know, celebration, in the news, you know, there were things, oh, this is something enormous, this is something important, this is something incredible that South Korea, who was a fragile state to become the OECD member country was there. Mm. But from daily life, people didn't know what, why it was so important. What does that mean, you know? Mm. We are still struggling and then we still uh, want to achieve them. All of a sudden, uh, not long after, you know, we had an Asian financial crisis. So it was not like people enjoyed the moment of becoming OECD members. You know, in theory, on paper, we know that it's something good. Mm -hmm. But in real life, nothing much. No, it's not right. much different, right? So that's uh, uh, yeah, what happened and uh, that's how I see the situation. Whenever I read about Kim Young Sam, it's always Segepa. It's always that mm -hmm. word that comes mm -hmm. up. Now, now yeah. it's now it's globalization is the one that I keep seeing right. that we have to get to terms with. You've mentioned mm -hmm. the Asian financial crisis or the IMF uh, mm -hmm. a few times here, Sojin. And when you were talking about aid development, you you were you were suggesting that if there's a plan and there's the seed money, then countries or states can do it themselves because they know their environment rather than these externally imposed neoliberal ideas i think you mentioned like the world bank so when i think about the asian financial crisis or the imf crisis in south korea 1997 1998 some people see that as like the beginning of the end mm. like that was the introduction of neoliberalism and it was like now it's gone terrible other people see that as like the, the savior and, and we came out through it so it, it divides opinion do you have a take on that whether that was a was a positive thing having had now 20 years hindsight personally i'm not a fan of washington consensus so this world bank imf their mm. policy structuralism the neoliberal based uh, we call it washington consensus uh Bretton Woods system mm. i'm not a fan of them because they tend to impose one policy as i said once still still they are within but you know it's really different to change the organization of the culture as well yeah. so they are still uh, in there and also in south korea um the imf loan 
was there. And because of that, um, as a condition, there were structural changes in South Korean economic system. For example, you know, this uh, octopus-like uh, multi, um, yeah, big giant uh, mm. jabal companies had to restructure and giving up certain part. And like Daewoo, a car manufacturing uh, company had to be merged by, uh, merged by uh, the American uh, car manufacturer, all these mm. things. Um, it's, yeah, just, I don't know. So once you provide the loans, you know, you have full right, maybe full right to tell recipient what to do. But by doing so from the surface, it looked like it works well because mm. the uh, money came in and, you know, um, the manufacturing, uh, the system or the Japo system slightly uh, changed it. But at the same time, many of ordinary, sub-ordinary uh, companies, mm. the outsourced companies and their family members had to suffer a lot. And there were so many unfortunate cases. So uh, morally think, um, I don't think Washington consensus see the macro level, uh, micro level, but only focus on the macro level. And that's why I don't agree with um, Washington consensus. But yeah, because I'm not the uh, pure economist, so um, I don't see any um, better solution. So uh, yeah, I just can't say, oh, I don't like, and that's it. I, I, I know that I can't say that, but mm. at the same time, yeah, it's really difficult to provide any alternatives I know. So yeah, I don't know whether one is uh, correct or the other is not, but still um, just imposing without change, imposing one policy as a sound policy in multiple countries, I do not think that is um, right approach to do. Mm. And uh... Again, from an economic perspective or a theory perspective or this Washington consensus, mm. sometimes it doesn't account for the lives of people. And like mm. you mentioned, your father losing his job and everything like that. I think that's definitely going to affect it. So in that sense, Sojin, now South Korea being sort of this, um, it donates. I read recently that President Moon ordered the Ministry of Justice to donate 10 million in aid to Ukraine and things like this. Mm. It does play a role now, I think, South Korea. What role it plays can be debated, but now it does give aid and it provides humanitarian things, and that's really good. Sometimes, however, I see domestically in the lives of some people, some Koreans, that they're reluctant, whether it's with refugees or the building of mosques and, and these kind of things. And again, that happens everywhere as well. Let's mm -hmm. be clear about that and from the home of Brexit. But how much of when we talk about this aid and changing hands, what I'm trying to ask is how much is based on purely giving stuff and how much is based on attitudes and empathy? So how much is economic and how much is psychological or humane? I, I'm trying to mm -hmm. ask here. So uh, the conversation can be really complex or very simple. Uh, if, you, if we think about the accountability of the government, mm -hmm. government is accountable for the taxpayers because the aid money is taxpayers' money, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So when government provide aid, it can't be 100% away from taxpayers' benefits. Then it will be questioned, well, you are using my money to certain countries and what is my benefit, right? Mm. 
That is the most of the situations. And that's why China, for example, cannot reveal its aid money to its own population because many of population are still suffering a lot in China, but mm. then they can't, the government can't reveal, oh, we have this money, but then we don't want to give this to you for your a better life, but then we are giving this to other countries because we want to have a diplomatic relations with those countries, right? Mm. Sometimes it's not persuasive. Yeah. But the countries like South Korea, which is a democratic country, has to open this data. And that's why um, the South Korean government sometimes really struggle in order to justify to provide certain amount of money to certain countries. Not much different in other countries. For example, the UK, US, in the document, clearly saying that the development aid is provided based on the national interest. And if you see the ODA chart of Japan, Japan clearly says that we are providing, for example, aid money to Malaysia in order to make their low system mm. becoming same as our system so that our business people can provide, can have a more trade with Malaysia, right? So that is clearly stated. So in that sense, even the government development aid does work truly altruistic. Some of the Northern European countries are known mm. to be more uh, altruistic than other countries. But nowadays in this populist uh, society, you know, more and more, the development aid has become based on the natural interest. And for countries like Indonesia, Cambodia, those who are relatively lower level in terms of providing aid, they use aid money for their diplomatic footprints really common uh, practice mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that is one level we understand and if we think domestically how people conceive using this aid and for example not only providing aid to other countries but then my tax my tax pay used for these refugees within the country you know having people here in this country and then uh, spend it mm. Why? That is the very first question. Because if you think we still have slums in main big cities in Seoul, if you go, you know, there's slums and there are elderly people who just be there by themselves. Yeah. There are kids or there are orphans and the government can't take care of them, but then want to use this taxpayer's money for aliens, mm -hmm. so-called, mm -hmm. right? It's also, I can see that that is the uh, cultural uh, uh, dynamics there. Because yeah. South Korea itself started from very fragile status. And South Koreans have not been refugees themselves for at the certain level, like other countries like Syria or now Ukraine. Mm. We don't see many refugees around, for example, Italy or UK, yeah. every day refugees are coming from nowhere, right? Mm, yeah. China from North Korea, but South Korea, not much. And if you think about how South Koreans perceive about North Korean defectors, you know, even though um, the government say that North Korea is part of South Korea, but then for South, ma many of South Koreans, North Koreans are strangers, Yeah. right? Even the people who used to live together, still some of our people's families are there and we right. share the same language, same culture, same history. They are strangers. And because of that, if we think it's really not easy issue to address in South Korean society, it's still premature 
Mm. And we really need to change people's mindset, but it will take quite a long time to greet refugees and justify why we want to have refugees in South Korea. Because it will not be easy uh, to maybe, you know, uh, if the education system turns into the more uh, preferred way for this culture mm. uh, from the elementary school level, then the new generation may perceive it differently. But even for my generation, who's in our 40s, we've never heard of the uh, word or met refugees in our life. And all of a sudden, refugees are there. And then it's something really new. And um, that would take some time. And most of the policymakers or the people who can make big voices in society are in this generation now. So if they don't change their mindset, you know, uh, it won't be easy to accept and uh, proceed it uh, in a different way. It's pity, it's pity. But yeah, that's the reality. And maybe the reality is that long term uh, change mm -hmm. that will take place through education, perhaps through ideas mm -hmm. and, and through new generations. I want to mm -hmm. get to North Korea because you just mentioned sort of the, the people that come here from North Korea and you've done a lot of work on North Korea. But before that, when you were talking about aid and donations being labeled as uh, in the national interest. So I guess this is kind of I don't know, a philosophical question. I don't know if it's possible to answer. I remember reading like Derrida at university that I think it was Derrida with the gift. The argument being that it's impossible to give a gift. You're always giving it with the assumption that you will receive uh, benefits, either material or cultural capital, this kind of thing. So Jin, is it possible to be altruistic and give gifts without the assumption that you'll receive something in return? It really depends on the culture where you grew up. For example, in Northern European countries, mm -hmm. where you pay about more than 50% of your income as a tax. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is something natural. And you just take it as natural because it's your society. And having this magical system for free everybody. And, you know, if once you become elderly, then, you know, you can benefit from your tax because everybody does. Right. But... Apart from those certain countries, then there are the other countries. It's really a different situation. And being altruistic is, for example, when I was asked to provide justification why mm. South Korea, that time even South Korea was not um, clearly defined as a middle power country. South Korea, who has just become a donor country, have has to provide aid to the other country whilst it itself is not still traditionally high income or still have a lot of people around and having issues with the north korea mm. right and one of the justifications um commonly used was the globalized world you see the mars covid19 mm. sars uh, ebola so you have your neighboring countries. Nowadays, it's not even neighboring countries. Mass from Saudi Arabia, Ebola is from African countries. COVID-19 is everywhere. If you do not make those people vaccinated, for example, mm. then you will eventually be affected anyhow, even though you are vaccinated, right? It will continue. So that is why one of the reasons, if you think in the health sector, you provide them to have health system the medical system, 
universal health access, vaccinate, vaccination facility, ability, capability, and people get vaccinated with clean um, environment, all mm. these things are now accumulating, then that's why you provide aid for them to be better so that you don't be affected. So it's still right. self-interest. That's kind the of. point. Yeah. Yes. So even though in this globalized world, that could be a very good justification, but it's embedded there, you know, still, it's good for you. That's, that's why you have to provide aid, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you will be badly affected. So that kind of a mentality. But interestingly, when you say that, people nod. Ah, and they tend to think that's altruistic. Mm. It's really interesting. So it's really um, morally, ethically uh, difficult. 200% clear to be clear that we provide aid because we should be altruistic. It's really not persuasive. And if you see the government's approach, also there are many reasons because of the colonial ties, commercial reasons like Japan or US, national interest, all these things is, yeah, that I think um, is something we uh, should take on with. You mentioned it, it's I, I'm wondering now whether we can be altruistic without, you know, religions or grand narratives, whether we need them. You mentioned Northern Europe, Northern European countries. I think you perhaps referencing Scandinavia, high mm. tax and things mm -hmm, like this. Mm -hmm. um, where would you and again, this might be a silly question, but where would you position South Korea's altruism? As, mm. The reason I ask this, Sojin, is from personal experience in the United Kingdom, you know, walking down the street, I would often throw money to homeless, not throw money, I, I would put my hand in my pocket and mm. I would buy a big issue or I'd put some money in a hat or things like this. Mm. I don't think I was ever doing it about receiving future benefit, it might just be a social habit, right, to, to mm. put some coins in there. That doesn't really take place on a day-to-day -day level in South Korea. Mm. You don't see that level of homelessness in public and when you do, I don't see people sort of giving the money there. Um, it might manifest other ways. I'm not saying South Korean people aren't altruistic, but I, I'm asking you, where would you perhaps evaluate its level of altruism compared to the Scandinavian countries mm. that you said was quite high? Mm. Uh, I can't give a comparison comparison here, but what I, because I thought about this quite uh, for a long time, mm. It's more about trust. And again, the culture of trust. Oftentimes, even when I donated myself in Korea, mm. even my friends and my, my uh, colleagues tend to say, why? You never know where they use those money, right? Here in the UK, you, you donate and then it's clear where, and then you trust them. You don't even want to see their, you know, a balance sheet and it's clear. Mm. But in Korea, it's really everybody, not everybody, but most of people really being doubtful. Why? Where? Is, is it going to be really to those people in need? Or, and for the street uh, so-called beggars, right? It's pretty much known as that they are based on the gangster group. So they tend to be blind people. They tend to be disabled. Then, you know, the money goes to those gangs behind. It's not going to those people. Mm. In a way, it's not so for example um when i tip in the uk i always ask the servers do you have this one for you or is your owner who takes it mm. 
Mm. And if they say it's my owner, I don't give. If they say it's us, then I give, right? I think it's pretty much maybe from my own culture from South Korea, because I don't trust where this no money goes, no, without any tales afterwards. Mm. So that can be one thing why people hesitate rather than being altruistic or not. Because, you know, people all have a sympathy and empathy and they, they had their own difficult times and they know how it would be like, you know. And they, they must know the, the reason why we need to be altruistic. It's not because they don't know, it's because they don't trust the system, right? And we, as a South Korean, also show a lot of corruption. Mm. still going on you know i remember then you know um because i when i used to work for the aid agency you know i had to uh, have an education training sessions for the officials from other countries and one colombian government official was in the classroom and i was teaching about south korea's development and mm. she uh in the break time asked uh saying that oh I'm, i so envy you because your government is not corrupted at all my government is all corrupt- corrupted you know everywhere is corruption I was like, who told you the South Korean government is not corrupt? And, you know, that kind of, right? And the corruption and the experience of people and even for the presidential election, you know, this negative news coming out, who's more corrupted kind of competition. So that culture kind of makes people not to trust the system. And especially for NGOs, which was not there, the civil society, because mm. the my recent, uh, I'm, I'm writing a book on North Korea, and I'm pretty much interested in civil society role, and mm. I'm really into it now, mm. and looking at how South Korea developed as a civil society, it was a long way, and it wasn't at the culture of South Korea as well. So when people see the NGOs, it's more about the propaganda protest group against the government mm-hmm. is political group against the government is their norm for uh, ordinary people which yeah. is not uh, always the case right those kind of a culture and not trust the system for me looks like make people hesitate to donate here whenever people donate something they they don't question it they fully believe that those money go to people who need those money right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and some people don't give coins to the uh homeless people it's not because they don't trust or think that kind of no gangsters are behind of the scene it's because Mm -hmm. they think those people would buy drugs or cigarettes with those coins rather than buy food which is really necessary for them Mm -hmm. so that's why for example when i learned that I now tend to buy during winter time, for example, if it's winter, I tend to buy hot coffee with a bread and mm. give them the food itself rather than giving them the coins, right? Mm. So this, I think, is different. And if I put it in your previous uh, uh, question about the culture, mm. and this is also uh, one side of the culture difference and why people perceive it differently. I love the idea of trust. Uh, being important that in it and trust being based on the the social day-to-day experiences that goes on around you you know and so it's not so much innate or human nature it's not drilled into us as being this or that but it's based on the lives that we live in the environment that we come from and therefore we can 
make a better environment, make better people, perhaps that would be the goal. You mentioned civil society uh, in relation to North Korea. So that's a, a great jumping point to look at your work on North Korea. But before that, what what is civil society? <laughs> I, I, I hear it a lot. I, I, I kind of know, but it's it's one of those things where I hope a student never asks me because it's like, okay, so I get to ask you, so Dean, what's civil society? That is that is one thing. I actually uh, began to write a chapter from yesterday. Excellent. Good time. Beginning from what is civil society? <laughs> the answer is that simple answer is that there's no such concrete definition of a civil society yet. Okay. Well, it evolved based on the historical situation and how to see the civil society. But in contemporary era, from my point of view, it could be seen as either the society, civil, civil society, which has a sphere of people, mm -hmm. people's communication should be there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily need to be political, but that is the group of people who has their own voice. It does not need to be organization. It does not need to be association, mm. but it could be sphere of the civil society. So it's not like a civilized uh, or citizenship. It's more about the group of people who communicate about certain common interest. So that's how I see it. But I am still in the process no, as well, the books I am reading at the moment, like mm -hmm, you know, these mm -hmm. all provide the definitions of a civil society. And it's really a long story. As a matter of fact, I was really surprised to see how to define civil society because it's apparently different from NGOs or CSOs. Mm. Civil society itself is larger concept and it really depends on how you define. For example, um, I'm more interested in how Eastern Bloc European countries when they transformed from the Soviet to the uh, democratic uh, countries, what was the civil society roles? I don't necessarily look at the NGOs groups, but how people, group of people played their role. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the um, uh, scholars called uh, Purdue uh, defined it as, it's a, the civil society was a cradle for democracy in the Eastern European countries, mm -hmm. which I agree. And um, I see the civil society also in the same concept that is a cradle of certain changes, right? So that's how I see. And uh, I, uh, in my book, uh, define that uh, civil society would be the cradle for the changes in North Korea. So I guess that if, if there is change in North Korea, maybe civil society will play a role like in the Eastern Bloc. So what is... If I could just ask you this very broad question to start, Sojin, what is North Korea to you? Is it part of sort of your divided homeland? Are they your brothers or your sisters? Is mm -hmm. it a revolutionary bulwark against capitalism? Is it a, a nuclear threat? What is North Korea in broad terms to you, Sojin? It's really, really difficult because to be honest, before I came here in the UK, honestly, I was not highly interested in North Korea because I was so into development aid to mm. other countries. And unconsciously, North Korea was part of my country. That's why I didn't see it as a foreign country. And that's why I didn't categorize North Korea as a country 
four by eight goes to, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And all began uh, when I uh, joined here in the UK uh, in Korean studies and you know, the North Korea, all these issues. One of my family members, the uncle-in-law, his family has a root in North Korea. So I used to hear what he heard from his mom and his grandparents about the time when there was invasion from uh, North and when they had to escape, right? But even when I hear those stories, it's not my immediate family story. Right. It's just, you know, one of my neighbor's story like, and I don't quite categorize North Korea as a other country, but not as my family. It's just one of the country. <laughs> but another thing intuitively, I thought North Koreans are Koreans. And, you know, we, before the um, Korean war, we were just the same country. And I could have traveled up North if it was not divided. Whenever I meet the factors, the way how I share the conversation, the politeness, the language, mm. certain aspects of understanding, mm. same. But certain things which I have to be careful and sensitive whenever I speak. And sometimes certain things which we accept easily as a South Koreans among ourselves, really becoming trigger point for North Koreans. Mm. So this kind of things really made me puzzled one day. Oh, are they Koreans or are they someone different? Or it's just very difficult for me still, you know, I can't quite process how I have to conceive North Koreans, right? Mm. But I believe that it, would be really different between generations in South Korea. The generations like my my parents who have families, um, my parents' generation, some of them have their still families in North Korea, mm -hmm. can be more close. Mm -hmm. For generation like my um, uh, younger generations, like my uh, children's generations, your children's generation, can be totally different country. Mm. Could it be really different? So, yeah, it's really difficult question for South Koreans, not all, of course, but then to answer what is North Korea to you? Because it's really not simple and easy question to answer. Do you, yeah, I agree, it's not easy at all to answer. Do you have many interactions with North Koreans? I know sort of New Malden is one of the places mm. and there is a fairly reasonably sized, I think, North Korean population in the United Kingdom, particularly around London. Do you have many interactions with them or is it more infrequent and sporadic no i uh tend to limit uh, my interaction with the north korean defectors is because they know that i'm working on north korea so they tend to see me as the uh someone who approached them for interviews mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. because of that the relationship is really stiff mm. and the conversation is really limited mm. it's not like a friendship or colleagueship it's more about official work relationship and because of that i don't communicate with them a lot but in a way I have one person who I not often but uh, more uh, meeting more often than others but then mm. I 
limit my conversation about North and South issues mm -hmm. intentionally because that makes the conversation really awkward and then very just, you know, repeated way, you know. So that is something if I was not um, the academic here working on North Korea, maybe it could have been uh, different. But because they know that I'm working on North Korea, it's really uh, not natural to speak with them for me. So that's why I don't uh, see them oftentimes. I think that's what I, I recently spoke to Lee Sohyun, who uh, lived mm. in North Korea till 2014. And I made a point of not asking about mm. political issues and things like mm. that, just to try to get on that level with her. Um, so then respectfully, of course, Sojin, how do you how do you stay up to date with information about North Korea? I know it's perhaps COVID changes things and these days we have more access, I think, than ever before, notwithstanding mm -hmm. COVID. But how do you how do you stay up to date with it? How do you learn about mm -hmm. it? So um, the data I see is mostly uh, related to my research and I don't do uh, my own uh, interviews with the defectors because most of the interviews pretty much done with um, academics and they all have overlapping um, interviewees yeah. and it's really yeah. uh, rhetoric nowadays. And because of that reason, I tend to use a second and data which others interviewed or others uh, processed and triangulate with non-academic sources. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I know that there are lots of YouTube channels updated by the defectors. But whenever they say, oh, today I heard this story from North Korea that you know, we have changes like that. Always I'm questioning where did you have this information? How? Because I remember when they, uh, during the COVID-19 lockdown in the UK, um, there was like three to four months time when Kim Jong-un didn't appear to the public sphere at all. Mm -hmm. Then that time in Korea, the Taeyong and the other defector, the uh, two politicians who, be, uh, who became politicians from North Korea, they clearly said that my source in North Korea said Kim Jong-un was that. Yeah. But it was not true. Right. Who's your source in North Korea? And even though you have a source in North Korea, how reliable that source is? No, for example, you know, I'm in the UK and someone from South Korea asked me about UK. You know, I tell them, no, the news based on what I know. Mm -hmm. Then it could be true. It could be not true. I also have my limitation of data access, right? right? So I tell my South Korean friends, oh, I heard this today. Then it was like that. And it turned out to be that it's, it was not true in, uh, afterwards sometimes. So because of this process of information, mm -hmm. I do not take so-called up-to-date uh, information from the verbal process. Oh, I heard it from, unless they tell me, where it is clearly from. Mm -hmm. And even though it is clearly from someone in North Korea, we don't know how the person achieved this data, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's from just, you know, someone else's, you know, you just heard it from your neighbor, which is not quite true. Right. So this is why I don't 100% um, take the information as true at the moment. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's a frustration for me because of this huge limit of the validity of data. Mm. Yeah, it's that does make it difficult. I like your approach to it, though. So 
And we spoke, Sojin, about how South Korea really did develop in terms of the, the aid and the plans and the five years, the efforts, the sacrifices. And then North Korea, if you look at photos from 1953, like Pyongyang was rubble, and if you look today, you can see it and go, well, you know, it looks it looks all right. You see some pictures of the skyline mm. and uh, the subway. Um, what do you make of North Korea's transformation economically? Mm. So, there, I read some aid workers from, for example, UN bodies, telling that they claim that North Korea is fragile or the development is really poor is false because I saw a lot of difference and huge development, mm. right? Then I see where that person visited. If it's only Pyongyang, Pyongyang's different country. Pyongyang's not North Korea. Mm. Pyongyang's just a castle kingdom of the palace, right? And if I ask others, whether they really actually visited local places. Not many. Mm. And even those who visited Pyongyang, they have a certain district to visit. But recently I heard from someone else who visited the other part of the Pyongyang saying that you know, those apartments you see from distance looks very high, you know, these skylines, they don't have windows. You know, it's just open place. Mm -hmm. So whenever in, you know, the winter time, you know, the severe wind comes, you know, they have to come up with their own certain major measures to block the wind. Because right. like, you know, if you see the South Korea, the apartments, they have windows and balconies and to protect North Korea, just building no windows. Mm -hmm. So it's more about to see details rather than and the concrete, you know, the quality. Right. Obviously, it's looks better than before from outside to see those apartments, you know, the, the science uh, street, all these high buildings, and looks like, you know, even recently tested the satellite, um, right. the, uh, yeah. Technology can develop, you know, because people work fair. But if you think about the quality and also outside of Pyongyang, it's a totally different story. And also the borderlines with China or non-borderline uh, areas. So that is how I see. But again, because as a South Korean, I have never been to North Korea and I can only imagine from those footages, right? Mm -hmm. And I tend to compare it with the places where I visited in other countries, how the houses, ordinary houses look like, how the roof was done, yeah. how the street uh, quality is like. So based on that, I tend to uh, level, examine the level of the economy. But even for the uh, house consensus, the consensus and the economic report, we don't know exact how exactly it works. Because, for example, um, the Tanzanian government once announced that, oh, we reached the uh, primary elementary education uh, enrollment 100% mm -hmm. as uh, targeted by the MDG. But then the Swedish, was it Swedish? Yes, yeah, Swedish uh, NGO revealed that it's not correct because the consensus was not done correctly. And the, even Tanzanian government doesn't know certain villages situation. They don't know how many children were born and how they can 
include them into the data, right? Mm. This we call statistics capacity. And in North Korea, well, they have surveillance system. So maybe that could be more correct to see the situation. But in terms of the report, how correct they reveal and report, we don't know. And Mm. the economy situation, we use mirror data only nowadays, which means, you know, uh, collecting data from uh, trade partners of North Korea, from Mm. China, from Korea. And uh, we don't know how correct those data is as well. So it's really a puzzled situation, but regardless, many uh, scholars tried hard to get and triangulate and try to have a certain, so it's more or less, less like we see the trends mm-hmm. rather than see the correctness. And if you see the trend, trade goes up apart from this COVID uh, order closure time, it looks like they tend to have more buildings inside but still, we don't know how that affects and made our ordinary people's life better. Right. So that is uh, the situation whenever I see, uh, think of uh, the economic development of North Korea. Uh, Pyongyang is a castle is something that I've given to my students before, like that kind of mm. like fiefdom. And if you're inside mm. the walls and the distribution system, then you're good the further away from the center of physical power that the harder it is um this might be a very political question and you don't have to answer it if you do Mm. not wish so jin would Mm. you go to north korea if the situation arose you said that you can't go being south korean Mm. if you were able to would you yeah if i were allowed i should as a as a as like you know i i prefer to have a field work and in order to do research it gives a lot better quality of result of findings and as a person who now working with north korea i should that is what i think Mm. but uh only when the situation allows for example i remember that because i did my internship at the united nations in 2014 no 2004 yeah 2004 oh my gosh a long time ago (laughs) (laughs) and um you know in uh in in new york um we have North Korea's uh, mission to uh, United Nations. Yep. So the um, when Swedish intern organized the uh, visit to North Korea mission there, and the North Korea mission pro- uh, told uh, the interns, uh, we need to see the questions which you want to ask, and then you will be allowed uh, to ask questions only you are allowed to, right? Mm-hmm. And I was so excited uh, to, to see North Koreans because I heard that um, there are many North Koreans in New York, but then you don't know who's who, right? Then I received a call from South Korean um, uh, embassy saying that it's up to you, it's your liberty to visit North Korea mission or not. But bear in mind, we have the law, national security law. Mm. Then it's, it does not mean that you'll be jailed. It's not like that, but wow. there may be there may be follow-up sessions from the government, what you did and who you met. And as a young person who's in university, um, the um, level yet, uh, I want you to think carefully. That was what I heard. So I ended up not going there because that kind of uh, sounded like very risky, you know, for the person who's in, early 20s you know that kind of call really uh made me uh worried so uh i um 
didn't go there. But I know that I have a friend who used to, who, who was studying in Spain that time. Mm. And then she visited North Korea as a South Korean, mm. uh, as a part of NGO group. But no, nothing happened. You know, she doesn't have follow-up sessions. Well, we never know, no, secretly. Who, but, and now she's working um, uh, in the international organizations and uh, still um, talk to me about what was like long mm. time back. So it's really like you don't know um, how much government will be interested uh, or not as well. So it's just people sometimes make it like uh, bigger than the actual situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But still, I don't know uh, if the uh, uh, situation allows, then I still believe that I should go and see how it is like, you know, I know that some of the uh, colleagues uh, who I used to work in the Exim Bank they uh, visited North Korea as a work because mm -hmm. they had to deliver the uh, rice and all this stuff to North Korea. So they was in the ship and then they went up there to the uh, port and you know they had to wait for the clearance and then they landed, but then very limited contact, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, those kind of uh, like based on the work you can visit, but as an ordinary person, um, apart from like maybe Kumgang Mountain uh, tour, Regimes then, but I don't think I go there as a tourist. But then I want to go there to see the real uh, situation. But really, I'm not so sure whether I can uh, have time to be there in that sense. Apart from the tourists, yeah, it's it's a pity. But yeah, if if situation becomes better and I'm allowed, no, for sure I should. I I will go and see the situation and you know compare to my data I have on paper. Mm -hmm. and also the actual situation as observation. It would be good maybe to spend a week in a North Korean house with no electricity or water like you did in uh, Tanzania <laughs> or something and, and then compare it because that's how you learn and mm -hmm. and that's how you get it through that mm -hmm. that field work. It's, it's fascinating to hear about these phone calls that you might have had if you went to that mission. Especially, especially, you said that was two thousand and four mm. because that was a pretty mm. liberal period in mm. Nambuk Gonge or inter-Korean mm. relations. Um, in your work, Sojin, um, that you've done previously, um, I've seen you rally against the idea of sanctions. Mm. Uh, so there was a peace forum last year where you were speaking, and um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but as I was understanding it, you said that uh, sanctions do not work. Mm. and they uh, specifically with North Korea. So we've spoken about aid and giving things, but sanctions, they, in my naive brain, seem the opposite. Mm. It's not just not giving, it's not doing nothing, but it's financially punitive measures. And you've spoken out against these towards North Korea. Mm. So why do you think they don't work or why are you against them? Is it an economic, mm. is it a political, is it a moral position? So sanctions, you need to, when, when we say sanctions work or not, you need to see the purpose of sanctions, why you impose sanctions. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we are imposing sanctions on North Korea is denuclearize. But more and more, it's so convincing that North Korea is de facto nuclear state already. And it's really, North Korea, we do not abandon, we do not give it up. Mm -hmm. And by imposing the sanctions, for since 2006, less about two decades it's more about ordinary people who are suffering more than mm. the regime itself 
we need to separate the regime and the people. The adverse effect of sanctions goes to people. It yeah. harms the people rather than the regime. In that sense, I don't think sanctions working. For example, the recent situation with Ukraine and Russia, Russia has a lot of international trade partners and then you know it provides gas and it makes money from all these sorts of, and then inside of Russia, there are many people who need the trades. For example, all these Microsoft, even Samsung, mm. the H&M, all these you know, suppliers, they cut the trade. Mm. Then people inside, they see, oh, this is uncomfortable. It's not like we can't live without them, but it's uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. And the Russian government can't make money from this uh, trade. And the uh, oligarchs, you know, they have no access to their finance now. These kind of countries who have a lot of traders so that the effect of sanctions can become bigger than more people who can think and go have ability to protest against government being affected by the sanctions, then it may work. Mm. But in North Korea, number one, it doesn't have many international trade partners. It relied on the China and China doesn't abide by sanctions, mm -hmm. and the dependence on China will become even larger. And North Korea, in that sense, does not affect by the international sanctions that much because it doesn't have many things to lose anyway from the sanctions, right? Mm -hmm. But the people, again, my argument for the civil society, they don't have a capacity to protest against the government. So even though there's a sanctions, they don't realize it's because of the sanctions. And also the inside the propaganda, you know, never say that you, we are being sanctioned and that's why you are suffering, right? right. But right. Russians, for example, they know exactly that, you know, it's because of the sanctions, the government did it, um, uh, did misbehaved. And that's why government made our situation in my life uh, becoming uh, worse and worse. I don't have uh, cash access to the bank. So, you no, know, that's why. And I know the government decision was wrong, mm. right? Mm. Then they have ability to process and ability to decide whether the situation is right or not, mm. and they have ability and capacity to go against the government. So it's inside and outside, squeeze into the government and sanction can work in that way. But North Korean case, it doesn't have that, that, that system. That's why sanctions on North Korea doesn't work, don't work. So that's why I argue that we need to think of something differently because North Korea is not like other countries. Right. It's a unique situation. Does aid work? So if sanctions negatively affect the people because there's not that transparency, there's not that civil society, there's not that access to information, um, people aren't aware of the reality of uh, sanctions. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, that is aid also uh, useless? I'm not saying it's useless, but does aid then suffer from the same problem? Because if you give it and it gets dispersed through the elite in like this kleptomaniac way without going to the people is aid also futile in that sense or so um i indeed discussed it in my current book um the the book which i i just finished the chapter about the aid and uh, this role is really complicated so you need to see different kinds of aid and yep. to make a long story short here mm. i more focused on the human engagement through the aid channel for example when um the Aid was provided after the 1990s, um, the floods and uh, Argos March. Yeah. North Korean government prohibited any aid workers who spoke in Korean because the government knew that the external people who come, came to the North Korea meet the ordinary people, then can um, 
provide the outside information, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Likewise, currently the K-pop, K-culture, K-drama, huge in North Korea. When you think about the Aryan content, you know, in the Eastern European countries time, they smuggled videotape, cassette tape with uh, the Hollywood movies and stuff, which were in English, even though they were not speaking English, but then they were speaking in Russian. Mm. But it still affected their cultural change. Now in North Korea, same language is even easier. SD mm. card, USB. No, it's not even DVD nowadays. Mm. It's easier for them to smuggle and then to understand it and you know, just observe the culture, right? And they that's how they change their mindset. You know, they even try to wear like a South Korean makeup, you know, industry uh, now is different. And they started to use the term of oppa rather than calling Dongmo, the comrade. Mm -hmm. So these kind of things really quickly changing people's mindset, the soft power that changing the minds, right? What aid workers can add up there mm -hmm. is to seed and to provide the concept of a human rights. In North Korea, they even don't have the term of human rights. They don't understand what human rights means, right? They are violated their human rights, but they don't realize they know something's wrong. They know they are having hardship, but they don't mm. know they have a right to have their human rights, right? That concept is not fair. So having this cultural influx and having aid workers as a human engagement, and they can now you know, change people's mindset and know that's how this human engagement is important. Mm. So for me, aid to North Korea is not only providing finance or food or the necessities, but it's more about bringing different culture into North Korea. And North Koreans know that, North Korean regime knows that. That's why they prohibit aid workers to contact with ordinary people. They prohibit aid workers speaking in Korean. They prohibit these people come and do the monitoring. Mm. right they are not stupid they know that they know that would change they would be the game changer and my argument here is that because we are having sanctions no aid workers can't go into north korea and they can't do this human contact they can't do this human engagement but what we need to see in north korea is those kind of engagement more and more because we saw the changes from the korean cultural influx in north korea already is proven right so that is why i argue that Sanctions on North Korea are not working in the same way as it was expected in other countries because the situation is different. And mm. what we need more is because the situation in North Korean society is different from other countries. So we need to have more aid in terms of not only to provide support, but also to build up more human engagement mm. and also um, having more uh, influx, uh, the cultural influx in North Korea. So by doing aid, by providing aid, that's almost like a proxy for human interaction because the aid yes. has to take place. And then that human interaction is also then the step before the ideas get placed in North Korean people's mm. heads. So it's like distilling mm. or disseminating mm. these ideas of freedom, of human rights or something mm. like that. So it's that step. Mm -hmm. It's it's i've always found it very interesting to consider the history of development we've talked a lot about money uh, as going through the arrival of new ideas in a society so i've been here in south korea while this mm. idea of uh sabasa and honbap and honjok this idea of individualism <laughs> and it's like and, and gaptil and korean people like all of a sudden 
it was there before, but it was never expressed with neologisms and cultural terms, this idea of individual desires taking precedent over the collective good. And so I found it fascinating how ideas change things as much mm. as economics. And do you think that that's it, Sojin? Do you think it's 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 about an idea? It's about these people understanding these concepts? Or is it more complex than that? It's more a lot more complex than that. That's why it's really not easy to write things down as a book or something because it's really complex. Yeah. And nowadays, whenever I see BBC news about Ukraine and Russia, I am really more and more puzzled because there is a girl, there is a daughter mm. who called her mom in Russia mm. and telling her mom that Russia invaded Ukraine. It was not legitimate. And people are suffering and dying for nothing. And mom in Russia didn't believe it because mm. from the news in Russia, telling her a different story. And she's so firm not to believe her daughter. Her daughter who has the own experience just escaped from Ukraine because of the bombing and shelling, right? Mm. Even though her, the daughter, her own daughter telling her mom that crying, you know, this is true, but the mom doesn't believe it because she doesn't see it. Mm. This is how easily people's mind can be manipulated through the media. Yeah. And that's what is going on in North Korea is huge, right? So more and more people come into North Korea and then you know, working on that way, then kind of see it, not only idea, but the fact that, oh, what I see today from the news cannot, can be not true. Mm -hmm. That kind of you know, question. What I hear from the government, oh, is it always true? or not they even do not question it right because it's not in culture but that kind of seed needs to be there that yeah that is more more complex than yeah. the way because we have many other things to think about the surveillance system and how people grew up and you know these new millennials and the mobile phone usage and you know the jangmadang generation they do not think then they not challenge the government necessarily but they nowadays have a double talk mm -hmm. and they kind of know that um, the government approach can't be always uh, right or true so all these things I see certain components of uh, factors there but they're not quite knitted in a yeah. way well yet and we need knit them well and that is why we need to provide more influx but the sanctions currently just yeah cut the all these uh connections real life is messy and complex it's hard to find clear <laughs> definitions and sentences mm. and theories and and things mm. like that it doesn't work like that it's really hard mm. and so is your work on civil society in north korea is it academic is it going is it written in aspiration does your heart or your head tell you certain things that in your mm. lifetime North Korea will have civil society? So I guess I'm asking, is it a, a theoretical academic exercise? Is it based on um, your expectations or your desires? So it's, in it's all mixed uh, in a sense. Um, well, of course, it's, I'm writing a book uh, as an academic, so the argument needs to have the supportive evidence which right. means you know writing it academically but at the same time i know that 
many of other scholars will hugely, hugely abandon my argument just easily like that. And you know, it's not the first time for me because whenever I call North Korea as a fragile state, mm. you know, I have a huge you know, um, critic saying that North Korea is not fragile state. It's not fragile state, it's not fragile state, you know. My, my argument is mixture of that. In theory, North Korea is a fragile state because I do not see North Korean regime as a state. Mm -hmm. North Korea is as, um, what I said is impossible state as a state, it's not state. So that's why I argue in that way. But at the same time, from my observation in other countries and from my experience, it's a society where human beings live. Yeah. And it's unfair for us to just sacrifice them and to leave them alone, right? And there, if there is a certain possibility to try, and why not? Because already we tried sanctions for a long period of time, I think is enough. Mm -hmm. And North Korea developed nuclear power more and more, not lessened, right? Mm -hmm. Then right. now it's maybe time to try something else. And if it doesn't work, anytime you can go back and you know impose the sanctions again if that really uh, proved like because no I I can't say that I'm right so I can be wrong right yeah. so in that sense I'm try to argue even though there are many resistance around me even my colleagues you know challenging me all the time persuade us persuade us <laughs> but I'm not I'm not arguing my uh, I'm I'm not arguing this to persuade someone I'm arguing based on the hope that at least someone should do this. Right. For example, when I did my PhD about Chinese aid, many people around me told me it's really difficult. You know, you don't have data access. You don't have uh, many access to data. Not many people working on that. Why you're doing that? Many people are interested. But then nowadays, you know, voila, you know, many people just talk about Chinese aid, right? right? I strongly believe that sooner or later, there will be some need to change because now people worked on North Korea for quite long but the data source is very limited, but the society should change. And uh, I see there's a potential to change. So that's why I'm trying yeah. to argue in this way. Uh, well, I don't know, you know, um, uh, yeah, after the book comes out, then uh, there can be a huge, really uh, uh, difficult uh, critics around, or even the publishers may do not want to publish it is. I uh, know, but yeah, for me, that is something necessary to be done. I'm reviewing books for NK News these days, so I hope mm. I look forward to reviewing it. Give me, <laughs> give me a copy. I saw you. your recent one uh, on the Bruce Cummings, and I saw your uh, the headlines. Oh my God! I was like, uh, oh, if David uh, sees mine and what 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 he said, oh, this is nothing new <laughs> as well. <laughs> I saw this um I saw this meme on the internet the other day, Sojin, and it was like person A, person B. Person A does a four year master's degree, starts a PhD, does five years field research, spends two years researching, writes a dissertation, completes the book, publishes and shares their research online. Person B sees the research, bullshit. And it's just <laughs> like you put your whole life and work into this thing and then someone on the internet says, rubbish. Um... That's that's life sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, I recently received an email from someone from nowhere saying that because of academic like you, the students are suffering. 
because your argument is bullshit. It was really nasty mm -hmm. critics without. But yeah, people have different ideas, different thoughts. Fine. Just I hope that at least someone takes this reasonable and uh, sensibly so that um, and hopefully my argument is right so they can be implemented and mm. see some changes. Mm. It's definitely something worth talking about. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And once once it comes out, I'm looking forward to it. Just when we talk sort of about these responses, sometimes we get working in academia and how things transpire. Mm. Um, I just want to very quickly talk about Korean studies. As, mm. as like a field because we're both kind of like in Korean studies but <laughs> you're the co-director of the International Institute mm. of Korean Studies senior lecturer like I've asked you your opinion on South Korea on North Korea now if I look at Korean studies as a field mm -hmm. do mm. you look at that with pride with apprehension how do you observe this field here mm. of Korean mm. studies my view on Korean studies can be something different or mm -hmm. slightly new mm -hmm. compared to those who were in Korean studies for a long time because I didn't start my career path as a Koreanist in the field. Mm -hmm. I started my career in a development studies discipline, mm -hmm. then jumped into the Korean studies. And it was possible because Korean studies is a interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. But when I moved to UK for Korean studies, many of my academic colleagues told me, oh, so you're going to teach Korean language. That, is, that was the immediate response. Mm. So for many of the Koreans, Korean studies are teaching Korean, mm. right? In Europe, it's more developed in a way. Language is based. So Korean studies in area studies, if you think about the disciplinary approach, is area studies. And most of area studies, for example, Chinese, Japanese studies, they mm -hmm. all started from language. Then language became the base, mm -hmm. then backbone yep. of the studies, and it becoming with the more other aspects. But still for Korean studies, uh, many people consider it as a Korean studies is a language and literature and history. So if you see the Korean studies in Korean universities, mm. many of them are very focused on the literature and history. Right. But nowadays, in especially because I'm in the European um, uh, institution, it's not only about the language, literature, and um, history. It has everything Korea about, about Korea. Economy, politics, IR, society, culture, media, films nowadays, especially music. The Korea studies is multi mm -hmm. and it has overlaps. So for me, I work on Korea's economic development, political development, economic politics that overlaps with my other side of the development studies yeah. and that features in. So my I normally say to my PhD students, you are in development studies, but also in area studies mm -hmm. with Korea as your case study. Mm -hmm. That's why you can also call yourself as a Korean studies person. So this is how I see the Korean studies. But still, I understand that many, especially in South Korea itself, see the Korean studies very limited scope. Mm -hmm. And because of that, many finding members of Korean studies in, from Korea are linguistics uh, academics or history 
or literature academics. But nowadays, um, more and more PhDs having case in Korea, yeah. increasing number working with North Korea, and also um, different disciplinary approach uh, they use for their uh, case. So they themselves can become Korean studies academics or scholars, but at the same time in their own discipline, social sociology as well, anthropology mm. as well. So that's how I see the Korean studies. I think it's really good that it's got interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary. It's got more of that than beyond just the the language and, and the history, which of course is important. Um, and also people coming from different fields and using Korea as a case study, because that gives this really, it's not objective, but it's a different view, isn't it? It's almost mm -hmm. that kind of outside in view. Do you notice um, any big differences in terms of English language, Korean studies discourse and Korean language, Korean studies discourse, or is it just the same thing in, in different languages or is it, does it uh, transpire or manifest in different ways? As I see, it's really different. Mm. So uh, normally as a Korean studies person in Europe, I do not communicate with academics in Korean studies department in Korea but I rather communicate with academics in different department in Korea, mm -hmm. working on Korea like you, you're not in Korean studies department, mm -hmm. but then you work on um, the Korean music culture as well. Then I tend to communicate with you rather than I communicate with academics in Korean studies department in Korea. Mm -hmm. It's because as I said, they are pretty much limited scope there. And also um, here in the UK, for example, I receive PhD request proposals on Korea at my institution. They are all having different backgrounds, sociology background, anthropology background. Um, I have a development studies background, international relations background, film studies background, public policy background. They are all, so it's really diversified nowadays. Right. Right. Uh, has have you affected it in any way? I get more and more students, Sojin, like coming mm. into my classes going, I don't know anything about Korea, but I like stray kids. And mm. I, I, I'm noticing more international students coming into the class um, just because they've kind of heard Korea before or they have an interest mm. in the music. Are, are you noticing in your end in the UK any changes from Hallyu or is it not mm. come in yet? So um, I tend to make a joke. BTS, you know, makes our life going on because uh, BTS, you know, uh, students um, interested in BTS and that's why they come here. That is just a joke. In mm. reality, I actually did a survey with mm. the freshman level uh, students coming into university and A-level students. A-level means high school students in Korea. Mm. Why you are studying on Korean studies? Mm. K-pop is K-pop, is not study. They don't want to study with something they enjoy, mm -hmm. right? Then it yeah. becomes a serious and they know they can't enjoy it anymore. Sure. And uh, whenever in open days, you know, whenever we meet parents, they are worried. If my kid studying K-pop at your university and are they going to have a good job? <laughs> so the reason why they come to the university is not because of the K-pop. And then actually from the survey, it shows that most of them either just generally, I've been to Korea once and I just became so interested in Korea, I want to know more about it. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the history of Korea, 
I really want to do the MA uh, in North Korean studies, but then I have to do the Korean studies here first. So that's why majority of them, I'm keen on something new language. Mm -hmm. China is too difficult. Mm. Japan is too competitive. So that's why Korean. That was about um, three years ago, I did a survey. I don't think there are much difference in between two year time. Mm. So that's not only about the K-pop, Actually, only minor number of students responded that I ended up with the Korean studies because of the K-pop or K-drama or K-film. Mm. It was not the, the majority case. The majority case is more, in a way, related to the job. I want to teach um, English in Korea, but I need to know Korea, mm. which I don't take quite um, right to study Korean studies because you want to teach English in then, right? But anyway, that also was one of the uh, reasons. I want to uh, know uh, more about Korea. I want to work in Korea. This is something different, new. Mm. Majority say it's something different, something new from uh, so-called European language, right? Yeah. And um, most of them, especially coming from, for example, our university, because the BA level is focused on language first, then have um, the social science factors that then it, goes into the deep way for MA and uh, PhD with more social science route. Mm -hmm. So many of them come here for their language and then they uh, see that is something different from what they uh, used to be. So those are the main reasons for students to study uh, Korean studies here. How do they get on with the language? I mean, for me, it's still hard. I still study and I still try to... Uh, how do these students... I think it's age makes a big difference. Mm. So, <coughs> sorry. It's okay. Most of them, um, as I see more and more students coming with level of Korean proficiency already. Mm. So we have a very gap, big gap the freshman level who really speaks Korean well, mm -hmm. who already uh, had a self-study in Korean mm. and the, who is really new to Korean. So it's really difficult to balance them well. So it really depends on um, individual level of Korean. So if they come along with well, then they ended up with a very good route uh, based on the Korean, mm -hmm. try to find the jobs uh, related to Korea, yeah. but for some, they give up the language, then they can go to the route which they don't need to speak Korean, but then focus more on social science way. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on the individual language capacity. But uh, one thing for sure is that there are more female students than male students because uh, it's uh, associated with the language and uh, yeah, they tend to think uh, language uh, is perceived easily, more easily for uh, female students than male students. I think that's why. It was the same for me in my Korean studies courses. Majority, mm. like, female, I was often the only man uh, when I was studying, which is interesting. And I do like that idea about, you mentioned it earlier, when parents might come for Teacher's Day or something, and they don't want to mm. tell their kids. The, the difference between, imagine telling your parents, I'm studying North Korea, 
I'm studying black pink. They just sound cool. <laughs> They're both really difficult, I think. Uh -huh. <laughs> they sound different, don't they? Um, so, Jin, I, I realize that I've, I've kept you a long time here today, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Like, I, I learned so much from you, and I'm going to want to have another conversation with you at some point in the future. Before we close out this conversation, I need to ask you the same question that I ask most of my guests, uh, which is this question. Um, we're all in this world together. So what is the purpose of life? What should we be living for? What can we be doing to make perhaps our lives or other people's lives more valuable on this earth? No, I, I'm really not a good person to ask that question because, you know, as you saw, uh, my responses didn't sound very scholarly or very academic because I tend to uh, uh, be a more uh, like ordinary in a simpler way. Me, myself, I, in a way, my life has been better than others, but in a way, I also struggled a lot. There were many of difficult points and turning points in life, which I had to endure. And at some point, I really seriously thought to take my life away because it was really hard at that moment for me to digest. But then now I know that there is a reason why there are things happening and anyhow you overcome. But the next time the difficult time comes, it's more difficult than before. So it's always challenging, right? So because of this due course, I tend to ask myself, why do I live? What people live for? I even ask my, my mom, why do you live? What do you live for? You know, you, your life was not so happy. You had to sacrifice alone as a you know, female wife in Korea, you know, with your parents-in-law in the family and as a working mom, all these things. Now I think people live life to try to find the answer and maybe the time when the last moment comes, then they would realize why they lived. Mm. I don't know how I would feel like, you know, when I uh, have that moment, but yeah, still, no, I'm still looking for the answer. And maybe that is the life, you know, you try to find out the answer for your life, the reason for your life. So see, as, as I said, I'm really not a good person to ask this question because I really don't have the, uh, um, the answer for that because I still am questioning very often times to me, you know, when, when the sky is uh, clean like today and, you know, mm. I see outside, I'm not really just by the way, but then I, I kind of feel like there's a, the existence of God and then I just say, thanks God, you know, giving me this beautiful day today. Mm. But then, you know, sometimes, you know, if I struggle with the people and why, why you are so, <laughs> so unfair and why these kind of people, you know, has me around and why should I suffer, you know, yeah. so all this. And then, you know, at, at the same time, I look around and, you know, people in Ukraine, why they should suffer like that? You know, what is the reason? So it becomes all philosophical and then going, you know, I'm just going into the rabbit hole by myself most of the times. I think that is life, basically, mm -hmm. you know, you, you struggle and you have happiness and, you know, you then realize, but then you forget and then you make mistakes, same mistake and you realize and all these things, you know, combination of things and then you learn 
throughout your life, then maybe hopefully have the final good answer in the end. Writing the book as we go along, I think, basically, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's blue skies and sometimes it's that really deep rabbit hole. Yeah, I think that yeah. that's that's one of my favorite answers. So it's it's oh, honest, though. but I feel and I feel the same, though, sometimes mm -hmm. like I'm not particularly religious. I'll look at the sky sometimes and I'm not sure what you call them, actually, like Jacob's ladders when the sun comes through the clouds Ooh. and you see those. Oh, yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? I yeah, see... the cloud nine thing kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I see those. And I'm yeah. like, wow, the world's Ooh. amazing. And then the next day mm -hmm. the world sucks. Yeah, so. I hate people. Oh, I love people. Oh, I hate people. Oh, I love people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that's life, isn't it? So, Jin, thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you. It was really uh, enjoyable. And yeah, for a while, I uh, didn't have uh, like a good kind of a conversation because it was mostly because I'm mostly isolated nowadays, you know. And I'm on my sabbatical, especially. So I tend to think about my book and, you know, being miserable because of this uh, Putin and everything. But yeah, it was really enjoyable for me too. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak today.